Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up. Architecture is phenomenally popular with an extremely diverse community of people. People are desperate to be allowed to explore and understand the buildings that make up their city. Is it important to be critical about our urban environment? Media coverage of the way our cities look, feel and operate serves an important role. As our cities grow, their form and function is tested and held to account by architecture and urban design critics. On today's show, we invite a collection of experts and professionals to explore what the journalists and critics are doing right for our cities and what they could be doing better. Does criticism expose urban inequalities, dodgy politics, rogue developers and ugly facades? Or does it only serve to encourage nimby attitudes and armchair architects? We find out all that and more over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. OK, so let's get critical. Joining me in studio today, I have Phineas Harper, Chief Executive of Open City and Open House Worldwide, and a columnist at Design, and also Fiona Sibley, Director of Town Planning at Building Design Partnership, and a former design journalist. We're also joined down the line from Los Angeles by the architecture and design critic Mimi Zeiger. My thanks to you all for joining us today. Mimi, perhaps we'll start with you. I wonder, first of all, as an architecture and design critic, how do you see your role? Do you picture yourself as an observer, seeing what's going on, explaining it to your audience? Or do you feel more like an activist, actually getting your hands dirty and trying to change the narrative of the city that you're commenting on? I think it's a little bit of all of those things. I think about criticism not as being an arbiter of tastes, like whether or not we should like something, like a building, like a new urban plan, a rendering. But I think of a critic as a translator, as someone who is moving between the very technical language, often of policy and architecture, sort of insider verbiage, and bringing it to a larger public. So in a way, I think of myself as a translator, as an advocate for things that I want to see happen, both in the field and in the city. And then of late, I've been thinking of myself as an ally, as someone who is trying to rally for the change that I want to see, especially uh, after the Black Lives Matter movements of 2020. I feel like the role of the critic is changing quite a bit. And just tell me a little bit about that, because, you know, in many ways, in the past, you know, the critic was seen as somebody who had you know, a kind of knowledge that you know, mere mortals couldn't have. But you're talking about something which I think Finnis is going to pick up on as well, which is you know, that this idea that we all deserve a voice in criticism of cities and how they function and run. So do you see yourself just as somebody who's, who knows a bit more, who can collate this information? How do you balance those things, you know, especially with an issue like Black Lives Matter, where it was important to think, actually, the, the tent needs to be opened up, more people need to come in and be able to comment on how cities are run. What's your view about the elitist role of the critic and, and the, the need for it to be balanced with this more open attitude as well? 
Yeah, I've long sort of argued against the hierarchies of criticism. I've really, in years past, embraced Twitter and not so much these days, but Twitter as a way, Instagram as a way of sort of bringing in more voices into the, a critical discussion. For myself, I think of how does the critic place an issue, a building, an urban plan within a larger cultural and historical context so that we're not talking about just the next big thing and giving it a thumbs up or a thumbs down, but also how do we demand more of it? And we see that within this kind of longer timeline of what has come before and what, what might we demand to come after. Phineas, do you think that your organisation, part of its role is this almost democratising of the right to be a critic? I was fascinated when I was the other day looking at your your website for your organisation. You, you have courses on storytelling, on guiding, on public speaking, and saying, look, you know, the, even this thing that we think of as very pleasant, you can go and walk around lots of nice buildings, actually has a bit of a radical edge. It's about saying this city needs to be opened up to more people and more people need to have access to seeing what design and architecture is. Is that part of your role, do you think, democratising this role of the critic in a way? Yeah, so Open City's been around for 30 years. Our biggest project as a charity is the Open House Festival. And the whole point of that festival is to empower ordinary people to tell compelling stories about the architecture and the neighbourhoods that is special to them. So that might be kind of absolutely banging Christopher Wren cathedrals. It might be Norman Foster's latest skyscraper. Or it could be a very ordinary community centre, a very ordinary council estate that has something about it, some architectural feature or community intervention that makes it important for a particular community. And I don't know if I'd call it criticism or journalism exactly, but it's certainly a form of media. It's a way of bringing people together to celebrate a story that deserves a bigger platform. I think this may be slightly different in the States, but in Britain, architecture critics really don't have very much power at all. You know, we're not like Jay Rayner, who can sort of destroy a restaurant overnight by slagging it off in, in The Guardian. We, by all means, kind of interpret, translate, campaign, agitate as writers engaging with the urban environment. We don't have a lot of power to sort of sway the sweeping course of history when it comes to urban development. But something that we can do as kind of culture makers is to try and empower ordinary people so that they can have more of an influence or more of a voice. Well, after we looked at this democratic idea, I want to quiz you a little bit about because I think you've got a little bit more power than you're, you're kind of letting on there. But Fiona, you're somebody who's been on both sides of this divide. You have been a journalist, you've been a critic, and now you find yourself you know, working for an incredible organisation, BDP. You're the director of town planning. How do you see when you see critiques of the work that you're doing, having been on both sides of the divide, do you find it useful, informative, enraging? <laughs> what, what's your view when you start reading the architecture critics on your projects? I think I find a lot of it quite irrelevant, to be honest. And I think I drive a big distinction between journalism and criticism. And I think the criticism that I sometimes read in the architectural press, I would probably distinguish from perhaps some of the journalism I might read in the Guardian or so on about sort of city issues, which are effectively political and economic issues. I do think we have a problem with architectural criticism or architecture with a capital A in which can get a bit preoccupied with esoteric concepts. And I would be much more of an advocate for more of the kind of journalism approach and and the kind of interaction that Finn's been talking about there, about helping people to understand and engage in a debate about what makes cities better. So I find that I haven't had 
that many opportunities where I felt enraged by how something has been interpreted and a journalist has completely missed the point of what we've tried to do with a piece. But I certainly remember when I was a journalist thinking, how have I got the right to come in and make a pronouncement on this project when I've looked at it for about two weeks when somebody's been working on it for five years? There's a difference in the level of engagement and interaction you can have with the project. Although brutally, that is, that is the critic, isn't it? That's the, the critic who goes to see a theatre production who might be worked on for a year or something. But actually, that's the judgment of the public as well, isn't it? You, you spend minutes in a building and you come to some quick understanding of whether it functions for you or not or appeals to you or it delights you. So in a way, I, I guess that you shouldn't have felt guilty about that. That is the we're all critics in that sense and maybe maybe that's important but do you think the feedback from good journalism then or good informed critiques of your projects is something that you would print out and you know give to a chief executive or say actually we should think about this in the future I think publishing is really valuable to the industry you know and that we all need a source book and we all need references about what everybody else is doing and and it's really interesting to see how our projects are received I think sometimes how they're received by critics feels like there is this preoccupation with them as empty buildings rather than focusing on the impact they have on people's lives. And I think I'd be much more interested in that level of debate in which people are drawn into the equation and we think a bit more about the discourse being able to be kind of participated in, as Mimi was talking about, by the general public. I mean, it's interesting to me how the discourse around architecture really lags behind the way the public feel they're able to express opinions about music or literature or politics or even food and restaurants. So why is that? Is that because of the language we're using about architecture that people don't find they can engage with? Or is it just that people don't know what they want to say about buildings? Maybe let's bring you back in here because I think it's interesting, this notion of you, know, you don't have that much power as a critic. And actually, there's a, two or three interesting stories out of Los Angeles, one of which is, of course, the role of Christopher Hawthorne, who was a critic and then has gone on to be chief design officer. He's joined City Hall under your mayor, Eric Garcetti, and has had an influential role, poacher turned gamekeeper, as it were. Was that an interesting manoeuvre for you when you saw that? And did you think that actually the role of the critic, they know actually a lot more than, than they're given credit for, and actually they do have a role in shaping our cities? I mean, I think the critic, we do a lot of work behind the scenes. So it's we don't show up at a project cold. So, you know, the role is to be talking to people in, say, development, people in architecture. Like So we're getting this sort of larger context. So something like, Christopher moving to work for Mayor Garcetti is really kind of reflective of the kind of network that he had built in order to do his reporting and criticism over the course of, I think it was 12 years at the LA Times. You know, I think this idea of do critics have power, it really is more of a kind of a lag in terms of how criticism affects change. I think of the work of Adelaide Huxtable writing for the New York Times. And in the 60s, she wrote a piece about the demolition of Penn Station, right? Which she had really advocated for it not to be torn down. But in her piece of Farewell to Penn Station, it was such a powerful sort of call to arms for buildings to be protected that it actually sort of kicked off a preservation program in New York City, and which was then echoed in other cities across the U.S. So if a critic has 
power. It's perhaps not to change a building or an urban development after it is built, but perhaps to sort of sway the larger conditions around how we are sort of moving through the city or sort of evaluating what we want to keep or how we want to exist. Phineas, let's, let's come back to you because you set us off on this course a little bit. And again, going back to Los Angeles, you, you have someone like Rainer Bannum in his book about Los Angeles, which still some 50 odd years later still defines the city a little bit. We have the kind of lionization in recent years of Jane Jacobs as a, a city critic and an understanding of the, the influential role that she played as a woman standing up to Robert Moses and the, the idea of how highways were dividing cities and communities. So there's two good examples. Even if you think you as an individual may not have that power, do you think that when you look at the panoply of great critics and things, that actually over time, both in explaining how cities work and perhaps motivating us to do something about them, that perhaps there is a little bit more power than you first hinted? Yeah, I guess I'm sort of thinking about the contemporary condition of architecture critics writing today, particularly in Britain, when I say that, you know, we don't have much power compared to <laughs> Jay Rader. But, I th- you know, this is just a sort of fact that, like, buildings are massive and they cost loads of money and the forces that shape them are far beyond the kind of forces that, you know, I can wrangle with as a kind of columnist at Dezine or, or anything like that. And that's maybe why I'm sort of a little bit more interested in kind of people power and the idea of a critic or architectural journalist as somebody who tries to see their mission not as coming up with like the most astute pronouncement about whether a building is good or bad, but someone who can galvanise a community to engage with it for better or for worse. So people often say that architecture is not very popular with the general public. I wildly disagree. It's not been my experience. When we do the Open House Festival, sometimes you have queues of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people across the whole city come to this festival. And that's just one of 50 festivals around the world. So that tells me that actually architecture is phenomenally popular with an extremely diverse community of people. People are desperate to be allowed to explore and understand the buildings that make up their city. And if anything, I think what I'd like to see more of in the media is a far greater share of time given to architectural discussion, urban debate, planning issues. You know, when was the last time you heard an architect on uh, Question Time? When was the last time you heard a planner on Newsnight? It happens occasionally, but not very often, which is very surprising considering how central these big urban questions are to so many important political debates at the moment. If you think of the climate emergency, if you think of the cost of living emergency, think of the housing crisis, these are all fundamentally urban issues that relate to how we design buildings, how we insulate and upgrade buildings, where we design buildings, what they're made of, where do the materials come from. These are all design questions. And instead, we have sort of big urban debates being had by kind of economists and politicians with very little grounding in the built environment. So I sort of agree with Fiona that maybe the future is less about criticism and more about journalism. It's more about bringing the people into a better understanding of what is going on and why, and then telling them how they can get involved and have their say in it. You've touched on an important point, because one of the things we discussed before the show was you know, the role of the pure architecture critic and the city critic. Because I guess often architecture critics, they're not the best examples sometimes, because they can write about a building just in terms of materials and its functionality, without actually sometimes thinking about the people that use them. And the, the interesting thing, I think, about 
what Open House does and what your organisation does as a broader group of people. It is about the interaction of people with spaces and and how they use them. And as you say, you go to Open House, you hear people very clearly expressing what they think about buildings for good and bad. So again, do you think that in a way it's the role of the critic also, to, if they're going to engage with people, is to also include in their criticism of architecture and design, is it this notion of how we're going to use the thing and what, how it's going to change lives or not? Yeah, I mean, the only good critics are the critics who are interested in people and politics. Anybody who who thinks they can write about the built environment without having a deep understanding of society and the forces that shape society isn't really writing about architecture. They might be writing about parts of buildings or, or something they've read in an art history book, but they're not talking about what actually goes into making an architecture. Peter Davey, you know, passed away, but he used to be the editor of the Architecture Review years ago. He would say that architecture is a social art. So this idea has been at the centre of architectural criticism for a long time, that without people, it doesn't mean anything. Fiona, Fiona, are there there people that you find the voices you do enjoy reading? Yeah, absolutely. I would probably say above all others, I think Oliver Wainwright writing in The Guardian is taking aim at some of those big deficiencies and issues in the longer view of how cities are developing. He's willing to point out the immoral lack of affordable housing delivery in in large schemes in London, how the politics and economic forces are shaping urban development. He wrote a very good piece recently about the the way the 2012 Olympics legacy had pretty much lost its way and had strayed from the stated objectives on which the whole programme was supported politically in the first place. So these are really good examples of good journalism that I think I would love to see more of. I think one of the other things we have is a, a really painfully negative discourse around cities and development in local newspapers. And that's ultimately where a lot of people, if you're talking about new housing on the edge of communities, are actually looking for this level of discussion. And and unfortunately, that's an arena in which there always just seems to be a natural rearguard, knee-jerk reaction against development. And it's interesting because I, I agree with Finn, there's people's appetite for interesting, wonderful buildings as expressed through the patronage in schemes like Open City is evident. But there seems to be a disjoint between that and when you talk to people about the fact there might be 300 homes that are coming to their neighbourhood, that suddenly their opinions and their priorities change. So how do we use language and journalism and, and reporting and engagement to sort of try and change the debate around some of those issues, which completely agree. I'm always surprised that housing is not a big general election issue every time it comes round. It's, you know, these things are hugely important to people. And this is something that as architects and urban planners and designers, we're principally involved in trying to work out how to deliver projects that have public support. And yet trying to get that public support is something in which I think we could probably all work better together as both practitioners, journalists, and potentially local newspaper editors as well. Yeah, because perhaps there the issue is kind of a lack of criticism in a way, because these things often get shot down before they even they even get off the drawing board. There's a kind of a negative rush to condemn the notion of change or of newness. Finn, you wanted to jump in, I think, maybe. Well, I mean, th- this is all partly because we have a, a reactive planning system, right, where we, we wait for a developer to propose something and then we tell them why it's not very good which is quite unusual, actually. Britain is an outlier in developed economies for having such a sort of backward system. Really what we ought to be doing is making a big democratically informed plan about what we want the future to be like in terms of our cities, in terms of our built environment, and then telling the developers to get on with it. This sort of 
backward strategy where we wait until someone puts something on the drawing board is inevitably going to lead to a very antagonistic relationship between communities and developers because the communities don't feel like they, they've really got a voice except in this one opportunity to say no. So I think that the only way to really kind of unpick that antagonism, I completely agree that it's really frustrating, it is a problem of local media in particular, but it is sort of partly a product of the planning system, and I think we should recognise that. Maybe let's bring you in here, because I presume that's a similar debate that happens in Los Angeles and the US. Yes, I mean, I think in Los Angeles, we are seeing, you know, such a enormous rise in home value and the kind of gap between, you know, sort of what a home costs and what people make and are being able to, you know, that affordability gap is profound here. And I think there has been a rising number of voices of people speaking to what might be some design solutions in this. And I think also criticism of some of those very difficult ways to approach it. So I think tiny house villages have been one solution that the city has rolled out and one that I have sort of explored and even going and talking to people who are using them as a critic, right? And thinking about like, okay, well, what is the benefits here, right? What are people getting out of having a small house, people who are unhoused? And then thinking about how there's also been sort of a really kind of backlash against these as well for people having them in their own communities. The NIMBYism is quite strong. So this actually shapes the design where these tiny house villages end up on really kind of outlier pieces of land, bad services, bad access, which only makes them worse as a tool. I'm not saying that they're a great tool, but you know they're kind of one of the few tools that are being used here in Los Angeles to confront the homelessness crisis. Mimi, I just wanted to ask you about that because you know we're seeing it from a distance. You know the how the you know when you have a, a mayoral election going on that you know the, this notion of the homelessness issue has made everybody a very sharp city commentator critic, whether they're in politics or in journalism or they're just a resident of Los Angeles. Is there a role for somebody like yourself to play in that, in almost moderating the conversation for the city? I think that my role is to try to sort of bridge between what can design do and what can it not do in these sort of positions, right? How can we think more effectively? And over the years, I've kind of written around questions of like, what are the more kind of experiments that we can take on in order to address issues of housing, of issues of affordability? I was recently just writing about accessory dwelling units or more colloquially uh, granny flats, which has been a change in policy in California, which allows for these sort of small homes to be built in your backyard, and that people have sort of been clinging to those as an idea that they might help with the affordability crisis. But I think there has been shown that it's actually sort of what might have been a tool has been sort of exploited actually by developers. And so, you know, I think we are in a time as a critic, where you have to kind of pick apart very complicated issues and sort of find ways of making them visible. Because I think for a general public, a lot of what they see is, and this is amplified with online discourses, they see all the buzz, right? But they don't necessarily know what's going on. And I think picking apart the kind of economics, the politics and the design issues is truly important. 
Fiona, you've already hinted this. So in a way, you know, the critic is not, as Phineas has said as well, is not a, can't be just a, a design critic anymore, just an architecture critic. Rather somebody who understands politics, economics, you have to kind of sit all of this debate in a much broader context for it to be successful. Absolutely. And I think I would support exactly what Mimi has said, that that role of the journalist as a mediator in trying to communicate what's good about development or design or bad about it, is the primary role. Now, now I'm a town planner, and as a former journalist, there's a similarity there in that planners also advocate on behalf of their clients, their developers, and the buildings that their architectural colleagues have drawn. But the role of the planner also is to explain what the public benefits are of development, what the good and the bad and how we're mitigating against the impacts might be. Now, all of those kind of discussions, I think, are really ripe for public discussion. And that's what people want to hear about. I would add to what Finn said about are people thinking about their property values when they're worried about new development coming into their environment or whether they're trying to weigh up whether they think tall buildings in their city are a good idea and will they help you know, make housing more affordable or any of those reasons. They're not only thinking about property values, they're also worried about are there going to be enough school places? Is it going to be possible to still get an appointment at the GP surgery? They're worried about infrastructure. In the capitalist system we all operate in, those things are provided as benefits of development and being able to explain and articulate that and draw the dots between those things is actually really important. And perhaps also that in those instances, sometimes it's not bad to be opposed to something. Not everything is good. And it's fine to have a debate about what height a tower should be or whether it's going to have enough services to kind of allow the people who live in that tower to access education and shops and all the things that that make life easier. Maybe I could ask everybody a little bit for their their view on where they think criticism has done good or, or even how they feel that they would like to see criticism develop in the future about cities. You know, Phineas, for you, when you, you think about your role as a writer, this, this notion where you have power or not, would you like to see a little bit more influence from organisations like, like yourselves about how cities developed? How would you like to see your role unfold? Well, I mean, what we are trying to do is to better celebrate communities who've been marginalised in the past particularly council estate residents, because there's, I mean, I'm talking from a London context, but like there are so many amazing council estates in the city with amazing people and amazing communities, and a number of them are under threat of demolition because not all town planners have the public interest in mind. Some of them have other agendas at play. And there's estates like Central Hill in Lambeth, the extraordinary estate, one of very few estates designed by uh, women in the mid-20th century, Rosemary Sternstedt, Amazing estate, sloping down a hill, extraordinary views. Council wants to knock it all down because they decided a long time ago that they wanted to build something else there, gentrify the area, bring in a new community, maybe one able to pay higher council taxes or something. So I see our role both at Open City but also as a critic in general is to sort of get behind a community like the Central Hill community to say, hold on a second, this is an extraordinary housing estate actually. It's special, it's important, let's protect it, let's protect the people who make it special. And I guess I'd like to see more of that kind of, of architectural journalism in the future, sort of campaigning, informed brings people along, shows them round, explains a story, and then has an impact at the end. Maybe let's bring you in from Los Angeles. For you, you've already hinted at some of the, the work that you've been doing and the, the role that you, you see you can play in the future about, again, bringing in communities into the debate about the future of cities who maybe have been excluded in the past. But what do you see as the route that 
city criticism needs to follow? Well, I would like to see more voices in criticism. I think there's so many underrepresented groups. I understand my own privilege as a sort of a white critic here in Los Angeles. I'd like to see people from black and brown communities have more access to sort of express themselves critically, not just as commentators, but really kind of to help shape the discourses around their own lives, around their own sort of neighborhoods. New Architecture Writers has been doing a really wonderful job to help foster new voices, but within publishing, there's still, you know, major hurdles for access to having sort of both trade and mainstream publication of those views. And finally, for you, yeah, what do you see as the the next step for city criticism and and how it can, as you said, sometimes it misses the mark and sometimes people are, are using it to kind of stop things rather than encourage good development. What do you think is the next stage? Well, all our projects are interventions in urban environments and cities other products of engagement as well as design processes. And I would like to see journalism engaging in that debate and assisting with that meaningful debate because it is about a variety of voices. I would like to see platforms for younger people to be able to express and participate in these debates. We're all familiar with the criticisms of planning consultations being dominated by people who are retired with white hair and have time to participate in those those discussions. It's really important that we think about the long-term future planning of our cities, which incidentally the planning system does do. We do long-term strategic plans. But the people that are going to benefit from those long-term 20-year time horizons are perhaps not even born yet, or they're certainly not voters. And we need to get their voices into the debate as well. So I think journalism has a really valuable and strong role to play in bringing all those voices together. Well, thank you so much to Phineas Harper, to Mimi Zeiger and to Fiona Sibley for joining us here on this special edition of The Urbanist. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of The Urbanist. Make sure you keep an eye out for more urbanism stories in the latest issue of Monocle magazine. You can find us on all good newsstands or, of course, become a subscriber at monocle.com. Today's episode of The Urbanist was produced by Carlos Rebello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Fionn with Everyone's a Critic. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Everyone's a critic, not just you, my love. Your friends banging.